I think the DIY process also helps people understand the whole idea of value. Because when you undertake to do something yourself, for example, somebody comes over to your house and fixes your washing machine or your dryer. Mm-hmm. And as they're leaving, you go, going, my God, $250. He was here two hours and it cost me $250. Yep. So that's the only thing you're thinking about is the fact that in two hours, mm-hmm. not about how many years it took him to learn the trade or the fact that he fixed it and you never have to worry about it again, that you're not going to ruin yeah, sure. a load of clothes. You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 127. It's a DIY world. Peggy Lee's Delicious Lips. It's a DIY world. It is. It's a DIY world. Do it yourself. Do it yourself. More so now than ever, it seems. Well, now it's becoming kind of a fad, but realistically, DIYs existed for centuries before it used to be out of necessity. Yeah, sure. Before big box stores came along and grocery stores and mm-hmm. all those uh, intermediaries, we did it ourselves. We hunted ourselves. We mm-hmm. built the house ourselves. We did everything, essentially, ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a DIY world, Peggy Lee's Delicious Lips. Yep. That's an odd title for what we're about to talk about, isn't it, Harry? It is indeed, but it is the title of a book. So what's the relationship here? Well, the relationship is being an author, being a writer, Mm. as with most artists, it is all about DIY. Mm -hmm. The whole point of creating something is that you've created it. And, of course, every artist has materials that they're borrowing and ideas that they've taken from other artists over time. Mm -hmm. But the creation is theirs. And so, as a writer, I wrote this book. It's among a number of books I've written. And I've self-published most of them. This one I didn't. Peggy Lee's, I was going to self-publish. It turned up that it was picked up by a publisher. Because you won an award, didn't you? Yeah, I won the Ken Klonsky novella award and Quattro Books picked it up and said, yes, we'd like to publish this book as well. So a lot of self-publishing is essentially a do-it-yourself situation. And the technology that has come up over the last number of years has made that process pretty uh, straightforward, Mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. And you can produce a book that looks pretty damn good yourself. Yes. From A to Z. From A to Z. And you don't have to buy hundreds and hundreds of copies and store them in your basement. Mm -hmm. You can buy a few of them and sell them and then order some more print on demand. As per request. Yeah. And so it's a good deal if you're a writer who's kind of developing your craft, Mm -hmm. haven't yet connected with a publisher, maybe you still need work, but you like what you've done, what you've created, and you want people to read it. And so you can self-publish. Mm-hmm. And millions of people are self-publishing every day. Right. right, and it's not limited to books. It's happening with so many other things, too. Audio recordings, mm-hmm. for sure. You can start your own online business, and many people do that. That's a new in the last 20 years. And especially in the last right. few months. Yeah, sure. From I Make Masks. Mm-hmm. Contact me. I'll get you some masks for X amount of money. You know, a lot of people are doing that now. Yeah. The corona situation has really kind of accelerated 
the whole process. It has. Not only for people who are working on their own DIY, but even for existing businesses that have to adapt to the fact that more and more people are looking for things online, period. Yeah, business models are changing as we speak. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, this whole fad of bread baking that has Mm -hmm. happened during the COVID crisis Mm -hmm. is really interesting that people have gone back to a basic staff of life, not just baking of bread. It's spending time together with the family that you haven't had before in different activities, including cooking, baking, etc. In our household, we have created a veggie garden Hmm. that we haven't had for a few years, quite a big one. And we're determined to grow our own carrots and beets, vegetables. That has required looking online, how to do your garden correctly, and all these tricks of the trade. DIY. DIY again. Primary reason for the resurgence of DIY in the modern world, because the access to information, to how-tos, is ubiquitous. Particularly YouTube. Mm -hmm. I think... 99.9% of people out there, if they think, oh, I need to learn about this, where should I start? We'll go to YouTube. That's what I do. Mm -hmm. There was a point where our lawnmower was on the fritz. Didn't know what to do with it. It just wouldn't start. Went online. They said, well, it could be your carburetor. Here's how you take out your carburetor and clean it and put Mm -hmm. it back in. Maybe that'll do the trick. I followed the video to the T, did that. Lo and behold, vroom, it starts. And you saved yourself a few hundred dollars. A few hundred dollars. As a pale-complected, useless city boy, I felt, okay, I'm a handyman here. I could do something. The reasons for DIY are not just economic. There's a control. There's a quality factor about it. There's a creative aspect. You have control or some control over the beginning, the process, and the end product. Mm -hmm. Which, in terms of the virus, there is a distinct feeling of lack of control in general, psychologically, which creates a ton of anxiety and, in some cases, depression. For which the creative process is often a counter to. It's a very great remedy. You know, Mm -hmm. you create something new with your own two hands. You're sharing Mm -hmm. it with your kids or your family, what have you. And it becomes an experience. It's a bright spot in a rather uncertain and dark time. Mm -hmm. So it's a way, as you say, of taking control of your life. It creates a certain amount of independence. Yeah, and I think the example that we're probably going to spend some time on, Mm -hmm. on this podcast today, is the making of an audio version of Peggy Lee's Delicious Lips. And as you say, you don't have to rely on other people doing it for you. If you're willing to learn the basics of certain applications, let's say, in the case of audio, Mm -hmm. or what have you, you can do it and do a very good job and create something of high quality, Yes, which I think we've done with this book. Yeah, and the quality is an important one because if you reference DIY on the internet and just look up general information, most people who undertake DIY focus more on quality than they do on the cost. Mm-hmm. So you might spend a little bit extra for the basic materials, the microphone, mm-hmm. the audio setup, or in the case of bread, the flour. <laughs> right. But you're willing to do that because the end result will be that much better. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you do save a lot of money because the most expensive part of it is not the actual tools, but the actual hours required 
to create the end product. And given that we have the extra hours to spend, right. all the better. Makes right? sense. It makes sense, yeah. Now, in terms of the audiobook, Peggy Lee's Delicious Lips, what would you say we've spent so far in terms of time on it from initial discussions to the audio recording to the editing, etc.? I've actually tabulated the time from when we began just to get an idea myself of associated cost if I were to extrapolate that information and come up with a dollar figure, rough value hmm. based on the time. Up until now, and as a matter of fact, this week we just finished the full audio book. All we have to do now is do that final pass. Yep. So from the day we began... This process, when the book was finished, you had won the award, and then I approached you about the idea of doing the audiobook. We agreed, and we began that day. If I include all the discussions, the preliminary work, and the actual recording of the raw information and so on, and everything that we've done in between, I've spent 50, 60 hours on the total project. Mm -hmm. So let's even use a figure of 50 hours right. to actually complete the audiobook from inception to completion. Now, this does not include what's going to come from this point on, whether it's the marketing aspect and other associated functions that have to be performed in order to get this thing to market. Right. Yeah, and it doesn't include the writing of the book. Which, which is probably 10 times that amount yeah. of time. Well, right? it took about a year and a half to kind of write it. Right, a few hours here and there. I, yeah. think, we, I think we estimated, give or take 10 hours, we estimated about a 500-hour process mm. to actually create yeah. the product, right? Right. So when you combine those figures together, we're looking at something that has 600-odd man-hours mm -hmm. mm -hmm. from ground zero to here it is. Yeah, and during that time as well, and I know you, as the audiophile of the two of us have gathered certain microphones. You've gathered some applications. You're working with Hindenburg, and now you're working with another one called... I use Adobe uh, Edition primarily. Adobe Edition, right. right? You've also gone through a learning process. Additional learning. Yeah. For sure, because sometimes not even to learn something new, but to make it more efficient. Finding quicker, easier ways of doing tasks that are constant and involve replication. Okay, so starting from the beginning, what mm. do you think was the biggest challenge in terms of making a quality end product? Well, in audio, the primary requirement is having a good raw audio file or recording to work with. Mm -hmm. And my compliments to you, Harry, because I've dealt with this before. And one of the most challenging part of recording any material is having a capable person doing the actual recording as the production is going on. Hmm. To illustrate what I'm saying, reading of a simple sentence, the more skilled and capable the reader is, the amount of work that's required in post-production is considerably reduced. Hmm. And even right. the production itself, for example, I might say that particular line, we need to redo that. Well, someone who's good at it or has some experience and skill might require two or three takes. Dealing with someone who has no experience or it's not their forte, you could be there for 15, 20, 30 takes. So suddenly a job that should take 20 minutes ends up taking half a day. Which is why publishing companies spend thousands of dollars hiring professional exactly. uh, narrators who know what they're doing and know how to inflect and how to get the rhythm of the writer's thoughts and feelings in their sentences. And often writers themselves are not good self 
reciters. They don't read well. No, oftentimes you know? most authors will hire someone else to do the actual audio portion of it. Right. Once you have that, then the time spent is really thinking through what it is that you want to create. And before you even begin to kind of organize yourself with a certain checklist, if you're going to record something, okay, mm -hmm. understanding the room that you're recording in, mm -hmm. having a consistent environment in which to record in, using similar microphones, yep. approximating distances and so on, so that you have this uniformity because the likelihood of you recording a two and a half hour audio book in one session is zero. Exactly. So this process is going on over a course of days, weeks, depending on how much time you apply in each particular session. Mm -hmm. And so all these things go a long way to reducing or increasing the amount of time. And of course, that's where most of the money is. When you look at the equipment associated with doing this, relatively speaking, because there was a time when this would have been considerably more expensive. Yep. But I can essentially duplicate in my own home, an office, assuming that I know what I'm doing and I've got the basics down. What used to cost tens of thousands of dollars is now hundreds or a thousand or two. Yeah. The real cost is the time spent. If I'm billing at 75 or or $100 an hour, 50 hours is $5,000 to produce a decent audio book. And in this case, we're only talking two and a half hours because it's a novella. Yeah. If you were doing a much larger book with more words in it, etc. We're talking considerably more time. From the point of view of the narrator, mm. you know, I narrated my own book. It was important for me from session to session, because I didn't record the book in one sitting, mm -hmm. it was important to kind of keep in mind the pace of the reading, to kind of be consistent yes. with that and to really feel the book fully so that each time I sat down to record the next few chapters, it would be of a piece. It would feel like it was just a continuation and not a new session. And then on your behalf, you did a great job in matching those sessions together so that the audio sound quality of my voice matched up as if right. I had sat for 12 hours and read the whole book. Well, thanks for the compliment. Regardless of the work that I did, I would not have been able to do that had it not been for your consistency as well, because there's only so much you can do with adjustments. I can adjust levels and so on, but a lot of what I do depends on the original content that I have to work with. So talk about the basic setup that we've got here that we used to create the audiobook from the room, the microphones, to the mixer, to the computer application mm -hmm. you used. Well, essentially, first and foremost is the microphone setup, proper microphones. In this particular case, we used a specific microphone. Which we, one? We used the Sennheiser 835, which is a dynamic mic. I could have gone condenser, but I went with dynamic because it has a little bit more flexibility, can withstand more fluctuations, and also has the ability to not pick up every single little detail like a pin drop, mm. which is not required in this particular situation. More important than the mic is the room itself, softening materials, reducing the reverberation. In this case, I've hung some duvets, mm -hmm. but essentially the room in itself didn't require a lot of work. We just made it so that there's less reverberation and so on. Once you have those two things, then it's about getting the input into the computer through the mixer. The mixer I use to 
process the audio into the computer. What kind of mixer? Allen and Heath mixer is just a four-channel mixer. It's very basic, but it's high quality without being very expensive because it's only four tracks. Anyway, that goes into the computer, which feeds the Adobe Edition in this particular case, the audio processing, which is called a DAW, Digital Audio Workstation. Mm-hmm. So for anyone doing podcasts or doing any audio work, that's what that means. So essentially what you have is an audio signal going in, mixing in, feeding into the computer, which then produces the audio. And then, of course, that's where the real work begins, the editing process of putting all that together. Okay, so back to the narrator, the writer of the book. So now I've uh, narrated a few chapters, and then it's in your system there. You're doing some compression. You're bringing the volume up in some places or dropping it down. You're trying to make it a kind of a consistent sound. Yes. Uh, You're looking for clicks and little artifacts, sonic artifacts, that Mm -hmm. you can actually edit out through the applications. Right. And I'm looking for words that I've clipped the end of. If this word is husband, and if I say husband, to my ear, there's no D at the end. And so I'm looking to either re-record or get the D on the end pumped up so it actually sounds clear and, and audible. Right. Again, you could spend an inordinate amount of time on a simple edit, much easier to get a cleaner recording. It's not good to alter things too much Mm. because by adjusting one thing often you do damage in other areas Mm. so the most critical part is that good original audio i can't stress that enough Mm. in terms of time saving in terms of the quality of the end product i mean i can certainly take something that someone who doesn't have that particular skill would have a difficult time with because they don't even understand the fundamentals of what's going on yeah so for example Right now, I am about six to eight inches from the microphone. I'm speaking not directly into it, but actually under it, and it's slightly on an angle. Mm -hmm. These kinds of things you've taught me to do so that the end result isn't too hot Mm -hmm. or inaudible. You're not not popping your peas. Not popping the peas, etc. And beyond that, you are able to, as the editor, as the audio person, you're able to soften some of those S's and hard consonants. And you've done that throughout the the editing of this book. I've noticed you went, oh, that's a bit of a hard T at the beginning of that word. Let's soften that, bring the volume down a titch. Sure. Even a good narrator, even a pro. There's going to be days, there's going to be moments where you're not on, your speed can change, you're not feeling as strong, you're gasping for air, uh, which is a common problem with audio recording. Inexperienced readers have a difficult time controlling their breath. Right. So you get this uh, almost like exasperation of Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, trying to get enough air to say the next word. Yeah, and I think you've softened my breaths in different places as well when it's a bit harsh. You also have to know who you're working with. For example, you have a particular style. When you get into character, and it's very noticeable in your book, you have a certain pacing. Mm -hmm. And the pacing changes in accordance to whatever it is that you're trying to describe or emoting. Because you're emoting. You're trying to paint a picture for the listener. As your pace picks up, it's very natural for the breath to go with that. So you don't want to neutralize that too much because then it doesn't sound... Natural, Natural. right? So you want to more take away than you do add. 
Mm. I'm more interested in removing something from it than I am adding to it. Right. Whenever that's possible. So then the gain, so to speak, it needs to be at a certain point if it's too low. The signal to noise ratio, meaning that if you speak very softly, I'm going to get a lot more of the room noise. If I adjust that volume up, I'm going to bring the room noise up as well. Right. So the original recording, you want to stay within a certain range so that when you do make adjustments, everything will be adjusted accordingly and there won't be that huge shift. Yeah. Because one of the most aggravating things for people listening to audio, and I'm sure you've experienced this many times yourself, YouTube is a perfect example Mm. where you're turning down the volume on one video and maximizing on another and you can barely hear. Yep. And it's particularly aggravating when it's content within the same video. Right. So where the actual fluctuation is within that content so that you're not just switching video. Within that video, you've got to alter the volume. So then there were some figures, numbers that kept coming up, 16 or something. You kept saying, oh, yeah, it's in the 16 range oh. uh, to 19. That's good. What well, was that number? They're called LUFS, L-U-F-S. And these are standards that have been set up by broadcast industries to establish a certain level. So anything that is being delivered on that station or program is to meet these particular requirements. So I use that as a baseline, like this podcast, for consistency. Right. But what does that represent? What are the elements of that? In simple terms, average volume levels. Okay. Okay. So some of us have less range than others. For example, my particular voice... I don't have to do very much compression because there's not a lot of difference between when I speak softly and when I speak loudly. Right. In extreme right. situations there is, but, yeah. but generally I have a more kind of central mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where someone with a, a softer voice or not as much um, boom behind it, there's quite a variance from when they speak softly to when they get excited and pick up the volume. Right. That's what compression is. Compression is you're bringing up the soft sounds and you're bringing down the high volume sounds. However, you have to do it in moderate amounts. You want to keep it natural. It's very easy to over-process something. Uh-huh. And then you ruin the entire audio because you've exceeded certain limits. So right. these are just guidelines. And there's no specific rule. It's the same thing if I had a woman or another man who had a very different voice from yours. I might not even use the same microphone. Uh-huh. Because there are certain qualities of every human voice that accentuate certain frequencies. There are crossovers. There are women with more bassy voices and there are men with with higher pitched voices. But generally, Mm -hmm. women's voices are higher pitched. Yeah. So they will accentuate the highs more naturally. Someone like myself, if I'm not careful at times, I can sound almost muffled because you don't get the crispness of the high range. Right, right. Her car? Only the best for his hoveringly. And so what she drove was nothing less than a sleek 2005 BMW 7 Series, worth a sprightly 70 grand. And she naturally kept it spotless and smelling of clean mountain air. No, literally, it's a product called Clean Mountain Air, collected from the heights of Mount Elbert in the Rockies. Spray it sparingly, because it's expensive. We say drove, because this was before the incident at Willow Creek. Sounds like the title of a book by Zane Gray, don't it? Only it didn't take place in the Old West, and it didn't have a shootout, though it sure coulda, and by gub, old Hoveringly woulda done him wrong five ways from Sunday had she only membered to brung her gun along. 
Because truth be told, good old Peg Leg Percy wasn't even looking in the rear view when he backed that old Honda out of the barn at the cottage at Willow Creek, not seeing her purty little BMW just a settin' there like a settin' duck, and she with her head dern near buried in the engine looking for God knows what, and then chomp. The hood support jarred out of its pocket, a major slab of steel slamming down onto Hoveringley's upper torso, and oh my God, what might have been had she just... The ability in, in audio work is also understanding who you're working with, mm-hmm. what their tendencies are. So you're a type of speaker that probably does better a little bit further from the microphone and come in and out depending on what mm-hmm. you're going to express because I know your volume is going to change, your pace is going to change, and so on. Right, right. More, more variation in, mm-hmm. in volume. Exactly. Right? Now, this is an audio book. Mm-hmm. So it's meant to be heard And as the author and as the producer yourself, the question came up early on in the game, Mm -hmm. what other sounds? What about the music? What about the segues between chapters? How are we going to handle that? Mm -hmm. How long should the segue take between the end of a chapter and the beginning of the next? Do we want sound effects? Are there copyright issues to the sound effects that are going to be added? Mm -hmm. You know, all of these things come up as questions when you're doing it yourself and creating your own work. Exactly, because realistically, like in a non-DIY situation, this would involve a number of different individuals. We're trying to do the work of four or five people here. Yeah, yeah. To produce the end product. Yeah. So all these things that you're talking about would be directed to different people with different skills, and you're kind of wearing all the hats. Yeah, and in terms of the money, there's copyright elements. You typically have to buy those and spend some money. But if you can find them online in Creative Commons kinds of situations. Yeah, in this particular case, I actually owned the music that we used for segues and so on. Right. And you've spent all this time, way more than I have in terms of the technical side of it. Mm. And people out there who are contemplating creating an audio book have to take that into account. The fact is that if you're an author and you want your book as an audio book, typically you would have to pay a producer to produce that audio book. And maybe you would narrate, maybe not. Mm-hmm. There's more money that goes to a narrator. Right. So you got to think of the after. How is this project going to evolve as a business proposition? Right. If you're going to sell it, where are you going to sell it? Right. Mm-hmm. In our case, the publisher, Quattro Books, has agreed to put this as an audiobook on their website and to essentially give us all of the proceeds because they haven't put any money into the production of it. Yeah, or maybe they've never had a product uh, that they've worked with or have understood the value of because that's a whole other area as well. Yeah. And when you're dealing with companies like Audible by Amazon and the big boys, you know, they understand because they're selling these things all the time. Mm-hmm. You and I also talked about incorporating it into our donation package. Right. The idea is that people would donate X amount of money to the SIL and would get, as a bonus... Complimentary version. The, the audio book. Yes. Kind of thing. So it's a total package that you have to think about. How's it going to be packaged? Is there a visual attached to it that's going to go right. out with the file? Are we going to do CDs? Not likely at this point. 
people are getting away from that, uh, it'll be audio digital files, which is usually MP3s. And how big is that file going to be? Yeah. And how easy is it going to be to send that file Download, to somebody? Download, transmit. This is a novella. It's short. Two and a half hours is short. Relatively And, and speaking, how many megabytes, roughly? On MP3s, probably 140 megabytes. 140 megabytes. It sounds, sounds big, a lot, but it's not anymore. Right. Uh, because bandwidth is generally not an issue. Yeah. That's something you can easily stream or download. Now, depending on your speed, I can download that literally in seconds. Some people may take minutes, may take longer, depending on your internet connection, right? Right. These are things to consider. I just want to step back a little bit yep. to when you talked about whether or not a writer chooses to undertake the work themselves. I know people that have done both. Yep. And most people who don't have the experience, in fact, all the ones that I've dealt with who have not had the recording and production experience have all said that they would never do it again. Yeah, yeah. I understand that. As a self-published author, I have self-published books, too. Right. The most recent one is a book of poetry that I self-published called mm -hmm. Blue is Bigger Than Brown. And I did it through Lulu, which is one of the self-publishing sites. Mm -hmm. I believe it's a Canadian site. And it's a lot of work. But because I've done it many times now... I'm able to look at the interior and go, this looks good. This looks professional. Mm -hmm. I'm able to know where the mistakes I've made in the past, where they typically end up. And I check that and go, aha, caught that one before it happens again in this book. And so every book you do as a self-published author is better sure. over, overall. So uh, that's the latest one. Blue is Bigger Than Brown just came out and I'm excited about it. And, but, you know, the work begins. I've got to market it. I've got to get it out there. Yes. I just went on the radio on CIUT-FM. By the time this podcast comes out, it'll have it been a few weeks ago, right? Right, right, right? But it'll be a way of promoting the book and getting the word out. In terms of audio. Yeah. When I said that those people would never do it again, they wouldn't do it again under the circumstances in which they did it the first time because they didn't have the experience. Mm -hmm. It's not about whether you can do it or not. Most of us can do these things if we want to, but it's a matter of whether you even enjoy doing it yep. and whether or not your time is better spent that way. Why would you spend 80 hours of your time editing when spending a similar 80 hours somewhere else, you garner greater earnings than right. you would spending the 80 hours. So you've got to weigh all those factors mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as to what's worth what. Yeah. I encounter this even with my daily work. You know, someone says, how much time does it take to do this? Right. And I will say to them, two hours and it's $150, mm -hmm. say. Okay? Yep. Yep. And they go, wow, $150. And then I'll say to them, well, no, but you can do it yourself. You, yeah. you can do this thing yourself. <laughs> uh, so go ahead and really try it. And... Uh, if you still have a problem, uh, get back in touch. Yeah. And of course, all they heard was two hours, $150. That's right. Yeah. So then they, whatever the thing is, it can be a computer related thing, it can be software or whatever it is, but then they go back and they begin. And two days later, yep. after spending eight, nine, 10 hours, they might say, well, you can do this in a couple of hours. I said, yes, that's the amount. And then they realize that they've spent two full days not only have they not finished the, the, the <laughs> thing, but they've spent two days. Of so, course. So, so is two days worth $150 of to you? Of course. I don't know. <laughs> what you've just done, Peter, is you've put out the counter argument to DIY. <laughs> well, that's true. Which is what you're saying is right, which is know your limits. Know your limits and right? also know and, and, and know what's worth it to you. Because if you really love something, when you love to do something, you will find the time to do it. It might be in your spare time. What difference does it make 
if it takes you 10 hours to do something that you enjoy, right, and you do it over the course of two days or three days, if you enjoy the process, yep. the $150, not only are you saving the $150, but you've actually engaged in something, you've learned something, which is part of the DIY thing. You're not doing it just to save money. That's right. It's a learning experience. And a lot of people are taking the time now to actually do things they haven't had time before, learn a new language. Exactly. I know people who are doing that, You know, whether it's baking bread or learning a language or reading travel books, preparation for for traveling, whenever that restarts. All of these things are learning experiences. And there's something else about DIY that I want to address that we've addressed in podcasts previous to this, and that's what you value, right? right? I think the DIY process also helps people understand the whole idea of value. Because when you undertake to do something yourself, for example, somebody comes over to your house and fixes your washing machine or your dryer, Mm -hmm. And as they're leaving, you're going, my God, $250. He was here two hours and it cost me $250. Yep. So that's the only thing you're thinking about is the fact that in two hours, mm -hmm. not about how many years it took him to learn the trade or the fact that he fixed it and you never have to worry about it again, that you're not going to ruin yeah, the, sure. a load of clothes. We begin to understand a little bit better about what all of us sure. have to contribute sure. and value. And if you are going to do it yourself... Be aware that there could be a period of trial and error and of mistakes. Absolutely. This podcast didn't really start until after about the seventh or eighth podcast. We did seven or eight of them, mm -hmm. and we did not air those podcasts, even though the content was good. Right. The sound quality wasn't as good as you knew it could be. And wisely, you said, let's not start. Let's start now getting them out because now the sound quality is strong. So experiment, take the time to make mistakes. It's going to happen. Then you'll learn. And that's part of the joy of DIY. Exactly. Is that whole process. And so if nothing else, take the words I can't out of your vocabulary. Wasn't that a Barack Obama thing? <laughs> I don't know. Was it? Yeah. Yes, we can. That oh, yes, was his, we can. That was okay. his... <laughs> okay. sorry, sorry for stealing it. It wasn't intentional. <laughs> so, you know, I'm 69 years old and I'm going to go out and I'm going to learn how to uh, run a marathon and then compete in the 26-mile Boston Marathon, having never run one before. I've heard there's a couple of 85-, 90-year-olds who've run it, so why not, Eric? <laughs> Suicide it yourself, in other words. <laughs> Again, we'd love to hear your comments. Yeah, and if not this time around, uh, next time around, be prepared for the idea that an audiobook mm -hmm. could be a bonus if you contribute. Yeah. And we have a, an excellent DIY. We've got a little button on our website. You just press and record. Exactly. Ciao, Harry. Ciao, Peter. The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production available at thesillpodcast.com.